Welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today we're going to be talking about vintage guitar expert, author, and retailer George Grun. Stay tuned. Everybody, thanks for joining us again this week for our episode all about George Grun, the most notable vintage guitar collector probably out there these days. I would say so. Guitar expert. Guitar expert. Certainly the uh, the guy who really originated the term of vintage guitar market. Um, before that, they were known as used instruments. And uh, because of the value that George and others placed on these uh, rare items, Mostly starting with the uh, pre-war Martin guitars, George really established a whole niche in our industry. And uh, there were several others that were doing it about the same time. But I think what put George ahead, uh, not only his uh, very successful music store on Broadway in Nashville, Tennessee, he also was writing articles for several magazines that wound up being several well-known books. And as Dan mentioned, uh, George eventually opened up a shop down in Nashville on Broadway, and we were recently in Nashville for the summer show. And Dan, did, is that the building you pointed out to us that it's unfortunately no longer there? But yeah, George the sold signage. the building. Yeah, yeah, just a few uh, years ago, and uh, opened up a shop about ten minutes away. Um, a beautiful new building, actually. Um, but that old historic building still has a Groon guitar uh, advertisement way up on top in brick. And I'm kind of hoping that'll still stay, but I know they're refurbishing it right now, so we'll see. But very historic. Uh, you know, George was taking a chance when he was a, uh, a student in the university studying animal husbandry and wanting to be a zoologist. He, uh, he went out into the, the hills surrounding Nashville and picked up these, uh, these rare Martin guitars and mandolins that people had in hawk shops and in their attics even. And uh, a funny story, because he was uh, enamored with animals, he actually had no alarm on his car, but he put live snakes that would crawl around in the back. And uh, as a result, nobody ever stole any of his instruments. Um, but he collected them in the early, early days. And as a result, uh, he really started this amazing collection that he has personally. Um, and over time, he realized that there were very few details about some of the manufacturing processes that went on. Um, and so he started measuring instruments, taking them apart, understanding the, uh, the bracings and the woods and, and uh, the different elements of the guitars and uh, writing down serial numbers, uh, which is what led to the, the Groon Guide to Vintage Guitars, the, the very first um, hand book about uh, uh, serial numbers and model numbers uh, that was also co-written by uh, Walter Carter. So he really started something, and I'm really excited to be able to share some of, uh, of his interview. We interviewed him three times. This interview that we're going to focus on today took place in July of 2000 in his shop when it was out uh, on Broadway. So we're going to start with our first section, uh, talking with George, where Dan talks with George, mostly about his early background, his education, as well as the start of his collection, kind of what got him passionate into guitars as well as the understanding um, or the foresight into 
if guitars would go up in value over time and everything. It's pretty interesting, so check it out. I think it's a very fascinating story as to how you got started collecting vintage guitars. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started? Well, for me, collecting and really the entire business is a hobby that sort of got out of hand and ended up as a business rather than anything that I truly intended as a career. I started out with more of an interest in zoology, started collecting insects when I was about four years old, and quickly graduated onward to frogs and turtles. And about eight years old, I caught my first snake, and I was just hooked on them. And I used to have hundreds of snakes. And by the time I was 12 years old, I was subscribing to Copia, the Journal of the American Society of Ichthyologists and Herpetologists. I was probably about the only one subscribing who didn't have a postdoctorate degree. <laughs> but that was my interest. When I went to the University of Chicago, I started in pre-med, but quickly switched to psychology, animal behavior then did graduate work at Duke in zoology and also animal behavior, did some further graduate work at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville in psychology, animal behavior, with a professor that I had known and worked with a bit at the University of Chicago. But by that time, I was also very much into guitar collecting. And it got more and more out of hand. I got my first guitar in 1963 when I was a student, a freshman at the University of Chicago. And within 90 days, I found it didn't really suit me. I wanted a different one. <laughs> so my first guitar was a Conde Hermanos Classical made in Madrid. Paid $300 for it used, which was a lot of money in 63, but that guitar would be worth at least three to 4000 today. It was a good first guitar, but it didn't suit my style. It was a classical. And I found that I wanted to play Carter family style. So my next guitar, I never did want what anyone else had. I got a Gibson Style O, made about 1915 with a Q scroll. And it was a really neat looking guitar, but it didn't really sound all that great. So about 90 days later, I wanted another guitar. So I got a late 1930s Martin F7 archtop F-hole guitar. Everybody else wanted Martin Dreadnoughts, and if that's what they had, I wanted something different. <laughs> so I got this pre-war odd F-hole guitar, and frankly, it didn't suit me that well either. My fourth guitar was a 1924 Gibson L5 signed by Lloyd Lohr, wow. which today would be worth about 40,000 bucks. <laughs> And back then it cost me $400 at Sid Sherman Music on Wabash Avenue in Chicago. Unbelievable. Now you kept the first three at this point. That's right. Did you trade but them? No, I still had all of them. Uh, but after that it got to the point where I was a student and Mommy and Daddy were supporting me and I didn't have a job and I was going to have to do something if I had this addiction. And that's in effect what it was. It was getting to be an addiction. So I found that as long as I'm addicted, I'm going to look through classified ads, I'm going to go to hawk shops, go to music stores, look on the bulletin boards at school, 
Well, for every one I would find that really suited my needs or desires rather than needs. I didn't play my way out of a wet paper bag at that point, and I still don't play all that well. But for every one that suited my collection, I'd run across a hundred or more that were really good deals on things that I didn't want, didn't need, but they were good deals. So I'd pick them up. And I could quickly turn them over, either trading them for something I did want or getting cash. At the beginning of each month, my parents would give me money for apartment rent and books and food. I'd spend it all on guitars, every <laughs> nickel of it. And within two or three days, I'd have back all the money they gave me and some guitars left over. Because back in 63, 64, these things were really easy to come by in Chicago. Things that today would bring $50,000 could be had for $100. And times have changed. So I've been at this long enough that I can say that I have historical perspective, not necessarily because I've read about it, because I was there. People talk today about pre-CBS Fender guitars. I remember them when they were new in the store. And Flying V's and Explorer Gibsons made in 58 and 59, well, I wasn't actively buying guitars, but you know those things sold so poorly I can still remember new ones in the store because in 63 and 4, Jack Moore's Guitar Studio in Chicago still had them. I remember brand new Flying V. It was $250 list price, and that's what he still wanted for it. And people laughed at it. Such an ugly guitar. Who's going to ever want that thing? And today, that guitar would be worth 100,000 bucks. But now, did you understand the value going up at that point? I mean, you had the foresight to say, "Oh, this is a good deal. I'll buy it, and it will increase in value." Or was that obviously really no one? not me or anyone else at that time, was in a position to foresee which ones would be 50,000 or 100,000 or 10,000. But I certainly was in a position to see that the pre-World War II acoustic Martins and Gibsons were vastly superior to the new ones of that time and that they had a fundamentally different appearance and sound. They were different beasts. And when I started, there was very little demand for vintage electric guitars. The real first demand for those that I ever saw was when Mike Bloomfield was playing with the Butterfield Blues Band. He got a 52 telly, and he did things on it that New guitars just didn't do. It sounded better. It was neat. And right away, within a matter of weeks, everybody was looking for those, or if not everybody, at least those in the know. And prices on old tellies went from 75 bucks up to about $600, which in that time, in the mid-60s, was a lot of money for an electric guitar when there was no prior precedent for that. And about a year later, he switched from the 52 Tele to a 54 Gold Top Les Paul with the stud-mounted bridge and the P90 single-coil pickups. And 
Tellys went down a bit. They didn't just go through the floor, but they went down. And the Les Pauls went from being worth 75 bucks up to six to $800. That was pretty neat because I could go on the south side of Chicago and find them for 50 to $75. And I could take them to the north side of Chicago and sell them for a lot more. And then later I found I could send them to Dan Armstrong in New York on 48th Street and get even more. So I was sending guitars to New York for Armstrong to sell. I was doing this with Les Pauls when I was still a student at the University of Chicago. But the acoustic instruments were what really drove my interest. I was interested in the instruments that would be ideal for bluegrass and old-timey acoustic music. And everything else to me was surplus. If I found a D'Angelico guitar, I knew that was good, but I didn't want it. Maybe El Carter didn't play one of those, and Bill Monroe's band didn't use one of them, but I knew darn well what a D'Angelico was. And I had associates, customers, and friends who wanted those. I found early on that if jazz players got a hold of an old Martin, they couldn't get good sound out of it and couldn't play it and didn't like it a bit. But if I found a D'Angelico that was in the hands of a bluegrass player, he didn't want it. So I could buy Martins from jazz players, and I could buy D'Angelicos from bluegrass players, and I could take them to the people who did appreciate them. I could redistribute them. I could find things in pawn shops and music stores, and they were readily available. So that's exactly what got me started as a collector. By the time I had an apartment of my own rather than the dorm room, I had a whole wall covered with guitars. Even in my dorm room toward the end, I'd always have six or eight guitars. But later I had a wall full of guitars. When I was in graduate school, I had a room of guitars. And it was literally a room with no furniture, just guitar cases stacked about three feet deep. And it got to the point where it was really almost, where if I hadn't traded a guitar that week, I was likely to get withdrawal symptoms. One day, I got a call from Hank Williams, Jr. He said that Sonny Osborne from the Osborne Brothers on the Opry had told him I had lots of old Martins. I had met Sonny because I was going to a lot of bluegrass and old-timey festivals in the summertime when I was off from school. And I started telling Hank about what I had. This was when I was a graduate student at UT Knoxville. And he says, well, I can be there in about four hours. That was pretty good because back then there was no interstate highway between Nashville and Knoxville. <laughs> We're talking about coming a lot of it on two-lane winding roads through the hills. But he showed up in his Jaguar E in four hours. And he bought all the, the guitars that that car would hold, which was about three. <laughs> it's not a big car. But he had brought one guitar with him that he wanted to trade. It was a refinished 1939 00042 Martin. And he traded me that for another guitar and bought two more. And he said he could be back the next day with a bigger car. And he did. He came back in his Cadillac Eldorado the next day. And he bought all the guitars that that car would hold. And still, I had plenty more. And he said that 
Nashville didn't really have anybody like me, and the town would be better if it did, and that if I'd come, he'd have an apartment waiting for me, and that he would help finance a music store. I was getting tired of the academic scene. I was discovering things like studying feeding behavior of pit vipers didn't pay anything. <laughs> and if I came to Nashville, I could indulge my hobby fully. So I came, and he did have an apartment waiting for me. He didn't do any of the other things. But that's probably for the best. In fact, I know absolutely it's for the best. He and I still today get along just fine, whereas we'd be at each other's throats and have been miserable partners. We're both too strong-willed to be subservient, and I would never accept him as a boss. He certainly wouldn't finance it and let me be the total boss. But I used to go over to his house every couple of days, and he was my best customer when I came to Nashville. I was in town for a year before I opened up a store. I just would wheel and deal out of my apartment. And it got to the point where if I hadn't traded a guitar that day, I was getting withdrawal <laughs> symptoms. I had a collection, and I had dealing stock. And they were separate entities. The collection was absolutely not for sale. And the dealing stock absolutely was for sale, no doubt about it. And the collection was primarily pearl-trimmed pre-World War II Martins, Style 42 and Style 45 Martin guitars. I also had a couple of lore-signed F5 mandolins and still had my L5 guitar. And I had a few banjos, but Primarily, what I collected was pearl-trimmed Martin guitars. And it made it a lot easier. There was no real conflict. If it was a Model 45 Martin, I kept it. And if it wasn't, I sold it. And that got down to the point I still had lots of guitars. It, by 76, I think I had six D45s and five triple O45s and five double O45s and four single O45s. And that's, by today's standards, that would be a lot of money. Because when you start figuring that pre-war D45s now are about $150,000, uh, I had a nice collection. Hmm. Plus, I had banjos and mandolins. But when I started the shop, I'd been in Nashville for a year, and I started with a partner, Tut Taylor, Dobro player, and Randy Wood as an employee. Randy was our repairman. The original name of the shop was GTR Incorporated, an abbreviation for guitar, and also George, Tut, and Randy. Hmm. Our intent was that we would deal vintage instruments but also that we would do some contract work for Gibson. Tut, Randy, and I went up to Gibson in late 69, visited the plant in Kalamazoo, and they were interested in reintroducing some of the fancy banjos, the Florentine, 
and the All-American, which they did do in 1970 as reissues. They also reintroduced, or not reintroduced, but introduced a remake of the F5 mandolin. They drastically revamped a great deal of their line in 1970. That's the time when Norlin took over. So that was George talking about uh, trading guitars with Sonny Osborne and Hank Williams Jr., um, as well as getting his music store started in Nashville. By the way, we were lucky enough to interview uh, Sonny Osborne back in 2008, and you can check out that web clip where, Elizabeth? At www.nam.org slash library. And just a few years after that, in 2011, we interviewed Sonny's brother, Bobby. So it's really kind of cool that this collection has two of the legendary uh, founders of bluegrass music and certainly two great proponents. Uh, Bobby, by the way, was uh, playing at the Grand Old Opry when uh, uh, when you and I were out there, Mike, just uh, in uh, June of this year. That's right. Yeah, I remember you got to uh, talk to him a little bit. Good guy. And uh, wow, what a pioneer in that music. So uh, it's kind of neat to hear George talking about trading guitars with those guys back in the day. In the next clip, we're going to hear George talking a little bit more than just guitars. I think most people assume that based on the literature they see by him and a lot of his interviews is that he is only a guitar expert, but it goes beyond that. Um, He has a passion also for mandolins and banjos, and so we're going to hear him dabble into that a little bit, as well as a little bit more about him opening up the shop and kind of converting from a one-man operation inside of his home and at his apartments and then eventually to a traditional storefront. But even before the Norland takeover... When Stan Rendell was the president of Gibson, they wanted to change some of the designs, see what they could do to kickstart some sales. And we showed them some vintage instruments and convinced them that they did need some changes. Now, quite frankly, some of the changes they made were okay and some were not too well done. Uh, They came out with the RB250 with the inlays more like the pre-World War II style three banjo, but they went to this multi-laminate rim that we certainly didn't suggest and it really messed it up. They went to the smaller peg head and fancier inlay on the F5 mandolin, but then they changed the carving pattern and a lot else, and that was not certainly at all what we suggested. Uh, They completely screwed up their flat-top guitar line, which in no way at all is anything that we suggested. They did reintroduce the Florentine and the All-American. They sent us down a carving machine, a spindle carver, and they wanted us to do the carving and painting for the All-American and Florentine necks and resonators. And we experimented around with the carving machine. Randy and Tut were going to be the ones involved with the custom work and the Gibson contract work. And I was more interested in just dealing vintage instruments. The Gibson thing never worked. They didn't want to pay enough for us to begin to be able to come out. They wanted to pay $90 for the carving and painting, and then they wanted to charge $4,000 list price for the banjo. It didn't work, and we couldn't do it for the price they wanted. And they ended up having furniture carvers in Grand Rapids 
do it, and I'm sure they ended up also having to pay more. But we ended up at that point sending the carving machine back. Randy stayed plenty busy doing repair. Tut felt somewhat like the fish out of water and realized that A, he wasn't going to be able to do much in the way of work, and B, it wasn't going to make enough money to support him and his family. So he sold out his share of the business to me in September of 1970, and we had just opened in January of 70 and hadn't made any money yet. Pretty much about the time that he left is when the business started to make some money, and I don't mean to imply that it made money because he left. I think it's coincidental. What is more, I think that it made a small enough amount that it still really wasn't going to support Randy Tut and his family and me in the manner in which he wanted to be accustomed. He had been a professional sign painter. He had other skills. So he left, which is not necessarily a bad decision at all on his part. We still get along just fine. And the business went on. We were located at 111 4th Avenue North, which is about 100 feet that away. The building's no longer there. There's an alley that comes out where the building stood. But I was in there from 70 to 75 in that building. It measured 20 by 60 feet on one floor. It had a roof that leaked. (laughs) Every spring, the termites swarmed up and sprouted wings and flew away. And... You couldn't hate it, you couldn't cool it, but it was cheap. It started out as a hundred and a quarter rent, and then later they raised it to $150. And that was about what I could afford back then. This was not a business that was making big bucks. When we first opened the store, basically we had my stuff and some of Tut's stuff. And I think when we opened up, we had 22 guitars on opening day. But... Uh, They were some real nice ones. We had two pre-war herringbone D28s and some other very, very nice instruments at opening time. So when I say it was only 22 guitars, I'm not talking about 22 Japanese cheapos. I'm talking about 22 real instruments. So that enough that it would be more value than many large rooms full of things today. So it took a while for the business to establish itself in terms of being a support for you and your staff. What was the motivating factor of continuing? Was it just being around? Well, I'm stubborn enough. (laughs) Motivating factor for continuing is nobody else was hiring me for anything else, and I was doing what I wanted to do. And by the end of 1970, it was making money. And even before that, when I say it was not making money, I wasn't starving. I was managing okay in my apartment. I was fed and clothed. Not elegantly, but I was fed and clothed. And you were doing what you loved. I was doing something that I liked. And it was progressing. Business was improving. And I was meeting a lot of good contacts Uh, By 1970, by the end of the year, I was dealing with Eric Clapton, with Norman Blake, 
with Rick Nielsen of Cheap Trick, with Billy Gibbons at ZZ, with ZZ Top, uh, plenty of country music artists such as Roy Acuff, probably at least 25% of the instruments in the Acuff Museum collection came from me. And Clapton bought plenty of instruments. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young were actively dealing with me in 1970. So I was making contacts. The business was getting a recognized profile even though it wasn't necessarily big bucks yet, certainly by 71, 72, it was getting more recognition. Uh, by 74, there was even an interview article about me in Country Music Magazine. Um, and I was doing export volume, too. Uh, I was doing some export to Japan and Europe. Nashville had a tourist trade. And... Tourists would come in, find us. We were located right near the Ryman Auditorium. The Ryman is the next building, like 250 feet that way. And and so we were in a location where musicians, as well as tourists, would find us. If they came to Nashville, they would find us. More so in this building than in that one. That building was located like you know, a couple hundred feet up the block, whereas we're right on the corner of 4th and Broadway now. In 76, changed the name of the shop to Grun Guitars Incorporated because Randy had gone in 73. He set up a place called the Old Time Picking Parlor on 2nd Avenue, two blocks that away. He's now in Savannah, Georgia. But Did you move into this building in 76? This is my third building. The second building was 410 Broadway, about 150 feet that way. And my property line right now has a parking lot behind me, which I own and use for the shop, and then the next space is where the first building was. But the alley comes out. That building's gone. The parking lot goes right up to a building and then that after that building is my next was my next building so in effect my current property line joins where i started and goes to about 35 or 40 feet from where i was next i've never needed a moving company to go from one to another The longest move that we had was basically 111 4th Avenue North to 410 Broadway, which meant that we'd load the stuff up on this little wooden dolly, take it to the corner and up 150 feet that way, and we were there. So we had a little wooden dolly. We named it Dolly Parton, and we moved our stuff. And the next move from 410 Broadway to here was basically a move of 150 feet. So, because our parking lot goes beyond the building here and just goes that direction. So, it wasn't a long way. Uh, 
it's not even 150 feet, the border of this building to the border of the next building, it's more like 100 feet, if that, from building to building, from sidewall to sidewall. Uh, Did it make a difference at all? Well, each building was bigger and better. The second building had three floors and had a bit over 6,000 square feet. This building has four floors and has about 12,000 feet. We have unusual organization so far as even the way the building is set up. It's pretty much asked backwards from what most stores would ever do. The first building that was 20 by 60 feet, the first 15 feet was showroom. The rest of it was a small office and repair and storage. Now that seems like that's not what most people would do. And they'd obviously devote it to showroom and then have a tiny little repair area and not much storage and probably not much of an office. But that's not the way I did it. My next building at 410 Broadway, out of 6,000 feet, had a showroom that measured 20 by 45. And the rest of it was office area on the first floor, storage on the second floor, and repair on the third floor, also packing and shipping at the end of the second floor. And we were cramped. We couldn't display everything we had. We'd put out a representative selection, but have an in inventory list of what else we had, and we could bring it down. It was almost like the library. You'd see what's in the card catalog, and we'd bring you anything you wanted to see. This building, the first floor, is the major showroom. It's what the public thinks, in fact, they don't even seem to know that we have more. You point out, yeah, we have four floors, and they look up, really? Well, yeah, I mean, you look up, and yeah, there's four floors, and we use them. Our first floor is a showroom. The second floor has this small showroom that we're sitting in for some of the specialty items, but is mostly office space. The third floor is packing, shipping, and storage, and the fourth floor is repair. Six people full-time in repair, and we devote as much floor space to the repair department as to the main showroom. And we don't even take in repair from the public. We only repair our own. Hmm. But if I'm buying 15 or more instruments a day, if you're dealing vintage instruments, just virtually every one of them needs work. They're not really ready to go until you set them up. We don't just simply slop them through without setup work. They may need anything from minor cleaning up and restringing to major restoration. Depends on the individual instrument. But we buy things that we feel have potential or that may be just great as they are, but we are not afraid to buy instruments that need work if they are truly repairable. Not everything, if it's 50 years old or more, is going to be pristine mint condition. But there's certainly no point in buying an instrument that is not repairable and is not of good quality. So that's really interesting, uh, George, talking about the, uh, the element of his store uh, having a repair shop. Uh, Mike, I know you grew up in a music store. How important is that, do you think, to the customer? 
I think it's very important to the customer because it's always good to be able to go back to a store where you bought your instrument to get it repaired and worked on just because you can trust the people that you bought it from and um, you know it's in good hands. And especially with George, I'm sure if um, people buying guitars from him would want him to work on that guitar because they, they would know that he knows all about every aspect of that instrument. Yeah, and he talks about in the clip there that the majority of his repairs are uh, pre-sale. So when he takes the guitar in before he puts it on the floor or advertises it or however he chooses to market that particular model, um, he does all the work in-house. And so it's rarely, I think that that's kind of a unique perspective that, you know, if you're purchasing a vintage, aka used, aka old guitar, that... But when you walk out of his store, you know it's in the best shape it could be, as opposed to buying it through a third-party dealer or someone maybe who doesn't take that much care into the repair process. That's true, and he's you, you can definitely see that um, he's done his homework, and he knows that it's in the best shape possible, so it's not like um, you're going out into the wild trying to find these rare guitars. You can find them in one place at Georgia's shop and know that they're in good shape. And another element I think is really important is that um, a lot of the expertise that came from that shop was because those guys were exposed to these amazing instruments and repairing them over time also was an educational experience for the staff, many of which have been with George for 20 or 30 years. So, um, And then, of course, uh, people like uh, Walter Carter wound up teaming up with George to write many articles for Vintage Guitar Magazine, other magazines, and a couple of books. So um, I think having that hands-on, as you're talking about, Mike, um, is, you know, obviously also a great benefit to the employees there. And I guess that leads us to the expertise that George also had in the vintage guitar market. And I just wanted to mention that um, since George was one of the first guys that we interviewed, he was uh, in the first 50 interviews of the oral history program back in 2000 uh, for his first interview. It really sparked an interest in me in trying to document that vintage guitar market because obviously it was around in George's time and it developed over that time. So I asked him and uh, several other people um, who we should get interviews with. So when you go to the NAM website and are within the oral history program, there is a keyword tag for vintage guitar. And uh, some of the people that we've interviewed Uh, In that category, of course, uh, Walter Carter, who worked with George for many years and went on to have his own store, uh, the Carter Music Store there in Nashville. Um, Also, Stanley J., Norm Harris, uh, Matt Ubinoff, Stan Werblin, and uh, Harry West. Those are key, key players in the vintage guitar market across the country, and I'm really proud that we have them in our collection. So with that, let's talk a little bit to George about the definition of vintage. Do you have a a bit of a silly question, but I bet you you have a very good answer for this. What is your definition of vintage? Is there a clarification? Well, that's not a silly question at all, because vintage is not simply a function of age. I deal in what I consider three categories of instruments, vintage used and new. New is easy enough to define. It'd be new. It's got a warranty. You get it from the manufacturer. It hasn't been owned by anybody else. That's new. 
that's straight. Used is not especially old and is a model that is still currently available. You could go out and buy a new one, but this is a pre-owned one. It's not collectible. It's pre-owned. It has no warranty. And you could go out and buy a new one like it, or pretty well equivalent. You're going to pay less for this than for the new one. It may be an excellent utility instrument, just like a two-year-old Lincoln Town Car may be perfectly good, has monetary value, has no collector's item value, but it has monetary value, and it has utilitarian value. Whereas if you had a early 50s gullwing Mercedes, it might bring a million dollars, but if you wanted to drive from New York to California, you know, I don't think I'd recommend doing it in that. You might scratch it. You might put miles on it and wear and tear. I just wouldn't recommend it. Vintage is like the Gullwing Mercedes. We deal plenty of vintage instruments. But vintage pieces are those which are not equivalent to the new and not something you can order new. If you can order it new and it's fully equivalent, it's not vintage. But it's not simply a function of age. It's not where you can say antiques are 100 years old by definition or more, and otherwise it's not an antique. I don't deal antique instruments especially. I'm dealing collectible vintage. And we do, we do deal plenty of new and used. I don't want to make it seem like we're so snooty that all we have is the new or the vintage. We have plenty of new ones. We have plenty of used ones. Uh, but vintage electrics are at least the golden era. And golden era may well be a better term than vintage. Vintage electrics tend to be those from the 50s on into perhaps the mid-60s, but not anything much beyond that. I appreciate that. Um, That's a good clarification. So if the so vintage acoustics are pre-World War II. Hmm. The ones from the 50s and 60s for acoustics, they're not the golden era. The best Martins are 20s and 30s. The Dobros are late 20s through the 30s. Really, the golden era of acoustic guitars for American manufacturing is 20s and 30s. Because before the 20s, before even the mid-20s, they were not steel string instruments. They were gut string instruments, which are not truly the golden era of gut string instruments either, because that is more Spanish, classical, and flamenco. So for me, the great banjos are five-string banjos of the 1890s to 1910, and then the great banjos of the 20s and 30s, the great mandolins are the Gibsons from about 1910 through 19, late 20s, not 30s. But the great Martin and Gibson flat top and other acoustic guitars, including some of the great jazz guitars, are 30s. With the exception of D'Angelico and Stromberg, where it's 40s and 50s. 
and D'Angelico up to 64 when he died, with one maker being sort of the link to the past, which is Jimmy DeQuisto, who died in 95 but had apprenticed to D'Angelico, and he's sort of the first of the golden eras, or the linked to the first golden era. But today, there are a lot of very good makers. There are folks like Monteleone, Benedetto, and numerous others. You, know, you can name dozens of them who do very good work, but they're not golden era. They're fine instruments, which today you'd almost have to say they're, we may be in a second golden era. There are more good builders today than ever before in the history of the instrument. But are any of them making a better acoustic guitar for a flat top or a mandolin than was done pre-World War II? Not in my opinion, they're not. I think they're just simply not reproducing the sound of a 1934 or 5 Martin today. Some of them have beautiful, neat workmanship, but they have not captured that sound. They have not duplicated the sound of a lore F5 mandolin either. They have banjos that sound pretty darn good, but they're not better than a 1932 or 3 flathead Granada. So the golden era there for the acoustics is pre-World War II. Does anybody today make a electric guitar that is fully equal to a good 52 or 3 telly or a real 58 or 9 sunburst Les Paul, my opinion remains no, they don't. So there are some folks making very nice guitars now, but they have not equaled that. Is there a difference between is vintage and collectible always the same? I'm thinking of if someone signs a guitar, it doesn't necessarily make it a vintage guitar, but it may make it a collectible. If someone signs a guitar, that's one of the least interesting things to <laughs> me imaginable. Almost all of these signed guitars are crapola guitars with some artist's signature. And it's just like today I got a call from a woman who has an Epiphone guitar signed by Winona and George Strait. It's a Korean cheap guitar. And it's signed by two artists who share at least one trait and that they ain't dead yet. And there are lots more signatures left in both of these people. And they can sign infinitely more as long as they're physically able to do so, and they seem perfectly willing to do so. Signatures don't amount to flop. Now, if you have a guitar that was owned and used extensively by a famous artist, it can certainly have memorabilia collector's value that goes above and beyond the value of the guitar otherwise. But that is an entirely different market than the vintage instrument market. It's not a market I tend to pursue. It's not a market I care about at all. But I recognize that it is a market. 
but to me, that's sort of like the Jacqueline Onassis auction where people spent 10 times or 100 times what item X would bring, but this one belonged to Jackie, or it even might have been John's golf clubs. Ooh, well, people would pay huge money for that, but they were just basically nothing special golf clubs. You know, that's not my thing. I'm interested in make, model, year, degree of originality, structural condition, cosmetic condition, rarity of the model, historical significance of the model, at some point maybe how it sounds, but generally the reputation of the maker and model. I'm interested in instruments by famous makers, not instruments owned by famous people. And it is a different approach. I could care less who owned this particular 59 Sunburst Les Paul or this particular D45 Martin or F5 or whatever. That's not the point. Although, yes, I've owned instruments that were owned by famous performers. I've had a fair number of famous performers trade in one for another. And I'll admit that sometimes I can get a bit extra. But that's not what drives my business. Although, yeah, I have things like, if you want Dave Macon's original banjo, one of his custom-made ones, yeah, there's one in the room over there. But it's not for sale. It's mine. And I'm keeping it. But I do have one of Dave Macon's banjos. And it's, it's neat, but it's also neat because it's a custom-made Gibson that was made in 1940. And it is a piece that was specifically custom-made by Gibson for Uncle Dave, who was one of the bigger stars of the Opry at that time. And it's an interesting historical instrument, regardless of whether it was Dave's or not. But when I started out, many of the instruments that were golden era were not really all that old. I opened up the shop in 1970, and I started collecting guitars in '63. Well, in 63, pre-CBS Strats were still being made. A Sunburst Les Paul from 60 was a three-year-old guitar. Even in 70, when I opened the store, a Fender Broadcaster was 20 years old. A 60 Les Paul was 10 years old. A Dot 335 was, from 60 would be a 10-year-old one. The oldest dot there was for, you know, they didn't come out till 58 for dot 335, so it would have been a 12-year-old guitar. So I knew that these were vintage, and I referred to them as such. I knew they were collectible. I knew they were dramatically different from the new ones, especially in 1970, because the new stuff in 70 was some of the worst ever the absolute worst era in the history of American musical instrument manufacturing was definitely, without a doubt, the early to mid-70s. Today's instruments are much better. They're not better than the electrics of the 50s. They're not better than the acoustics of the 20s and 30s, but they're a heck of a lot better than the instruments that were made 30 years ago. Age is not what makes a piece collectible. If the model is no longer in production or if the maker is dead, it can become collectible in a hurry. When Jimmy DeQuisto died, his stuff went up. But even when he was still alive, he was making less than 10 guitars a year. 
people realize that those things were as close to instant collectible as you could get, especially in his later years when he no longer wanted to make any of his earlier designs. So in effect, you could say that those were discontinued when he was still alive. Mm, that's interesting. So collectible and even vintage is not simply a function of age because I have to realize that when I opened up my store, even in 1940, D28 or D45 pre-World War II was a 30-year-old instrument. Today, a 30-year-old instrument is 1970. A 20-year-old instrument is 1980. 10-year-old instrument is 1990. Well, when I opened up, a 10-year-old instrument could be a dot .335 or a Sunburst Les Paul. A 20-year-old instrument would be a broadcaster for a solid body. The first commercially viable solid body that ever was didn't come out until 20 years before I opened my doors. And 30-year-old instrument, if you're getting into 1940, even the lore F5s were, they weren't ancient, but we were keenly aware that they were collectible. So that's a long-winded answer to what is vintage. (laughs) It's a great answer. So that was George talking about the definition of vintage and then the difference, in his opinion, between vintage and collectible, which I found very interesting. You can tell that he's very passionate about uh, vintage guitars and what he does and instruments in general. Um, It really comes out in his dialogue. And uh, so we're going to move on to kind of our last little bit here. We're going to start wrapping up. And the next segment is kind of takes us beyond the idea of just buying and selling vintage guitars. And George actually had a hand in designing a few instruments, which is pretty cool. So we're going to hear him talking about the Tacoma C3 Chief and co-designing some different instruments with Tacoma, as well as the kind of the more current at the time, 2000, the year 2000, of the status of his shop and what he was currently selling. I wanted to take a moment, if you wouldn't mind indulging me and telling me a little bit about that beauty sitting on the table next to you. This one? Yes. See, this is a Tacoma... C3 Chief. I designed a number of models for Tacoma. I'd have to say I co-designed because really Tacoma has some fine people in their engineering there and I originally approached Tacoma with the idea of doing the little mini guitar, the Papoose, which is here. And this is the prototype of the Papoose model. This is tuned five frets above a standard guitar. has the offset sound hole. And it was something that I felt that Tacoma, as a new company, could make in quantity, could make cheaply, and could make a bit of a splash in the marketplace. And it did quite well. It still continues to do well. It has a bolt-on neck. The offset sound hole, tuned five frets above standard. It's as loud as a full-size guitar. Michael Dresdner was the plant manager at Tacoma at the time, and he certainly has plenty of his input in this. But what I gave them was the concept of doing this body size, offset sound hole, although I had drawn it with two sound holes, and they ended up with one. And I drew it with a slightly different shape sound hole, but I must admit this works. 
I gave them the neck dimensions, which they at first thought was crazy, because it has a very wide neck compared to the body size. Other people, if they make a mini guitar, they scale the neck down to look right for the body. Well, your hand didn't change its anatomy. Since when should you have a smaller neck? Your hand got smaller? As the scale is shorter, you need it wider. If you capo a guitar at the fifth fret, one of the things you notice is it's wider at the fifth fret than it is at the nut because you have your string spacing at the bridge. And if you're one and three quarters at the nut or one and five eighths or one and eleven sixteenths, today most are one and eleven sixteenths or one and three quarter, depending on the maker. By the time it gets to the bridge, it's much wider. Well, at the fifth fret, it's also it's tapering out. This is one and seven eighths here, which is about what guitars should be at the fifth fret. So this has, in effect, normal neck dimensions. And it feels normal enough for your hand, but it's tuned up. By moving the sound hole up here instead of here, you can just put a bass bar and a treble bar. If you have a sound hole here, string tension takes the top up and makes it sink. If it's sinking, and you put a big round hole where it's sinking, you know, gee, you have to brace it to avoid that. So you put two braces here and a big X here and two up, two up, and two down. You've got ten braces on a bridge plate, and you don't have any vibration in the top from here up. Move the hole to here, you just put one brace there, one brace there. You do with two what you used to do with ten, and you vibrate the whole top. It works. Then, when this was successful, we came out with the bigger ones. And we have the prototype right there. But this gives a cutaway, but still it has the bass bar and the treble bar. There's only two braces on the under, you know, the braces on the back, but on the top there's just two braces. It's braced pretty much like an archtop guitar or like an F5 mandolin, which is possible with the sound hole up here instead of here. And the neck being a bolt-on permits us to do neck sets quickly. On a standard guitar with a dovetail joint, with time, it moves. And if you do it right and glue the fingerboard to the top and then put some angle back, you have a kink in your board here, unless you put a shim under the board. But either way, with time, you have 210 pounds of string tension with light gauge acoustic strings. It's going to pull your neck forward. So even if your neck stays straight from here to here, the whole neck moves a bit, and the body will flex just ever so slightly with time. Taking a neck out and resetting it can be a $300 job. Popping two bolts. The bolts go into metal bushings in the neck, pop the neck out, reset it in five minutes. Plus, this neck has fingerboard glued onto neck all the way, so there's never a kink in your neck body joint, and you can run the truss rod all the way to the end so that standard with a heel on the neck, not only will your thumb not be able to go up as high, but with the heel, the truss rod ends there, so you can only adjust it from about there to there, whereas here you can adjust it the whole way. So it's more adjustable, you can do neck sets. 
your fingerboard is glued to neck all the way so your tone does not change if you get into the cutaway because a lot of standard guitars if they have a cutaway once you get up here the tone fizzles out anyway there's no tone or sustain up there this doesn't fizzle out so it's easier to make it vibrates the whole top it's eminently playable it's designed where it works in a manufacturing setup and it is a high quality instrument but I have designed guitars for a number of different companies from 84 through 88 I was designing for Guild in fact from 86 August of 86 through 88 I was the executive vice president of research and development and artist relations for Guild and was on their board of directors uh, I didn't give up the shop here, I just commuted a bit back and forth. But that ended at 88. I then did some design work for Barrington guitars and then later for Honer. And now I've been involved for several years with Tacoma guitars. But my primary thing is still dealing at Gruen Guitars Incorporated with vintage, used, and new. I'd have to say that vintage and used account for more dollar volume than the new, although we are still a strong dealer on new instruments, and for companies like Martin, Gibson, PRS, we are among their stronger dealers. Um, for Martin, not sure if we're still in that spot, but I think we may well be that I think we may be one of their two strongest single store locations in the world. But we still sell more used Martins than, in fact, we may actually now be finally at the point where we're selling more new Martins than used. I was going to say we sell more used ones than new, but you know, I think that we may finally have turned where we're now selling more new Martins than used. But for the longest of times, I would have said the other. We are still doing more dollar volume in used and vintage than we are in new instruments at this store. And we're set up to do that. To do vintage, you need a floor plan more like mine, where the repair shop is as big as the showroom, and where we have storage. Most businesses, Especially in the music business, they claim that you know, the average store doesn't last more than two years before failure. And they say that the commonest reason for failure is undercapitalization. That's not true. The reason that businesses fail when they start out, some may be undercapitalized, but the most common reason is they're built like a political cartoon you know, where you have this head that's yay big attached to a body that's this big, and you know, that works fine for a cartoon. But if a baby was born like that, it would be dead. You know, every successful animal that you can think of has a body that's bigger than its head. You know, it needs lungs and digestive system and legs and arms, and some of them have a tail and whatever, but their head's not the biggest part of them. Now, when you see some announcer on TV, you may see talking heads. But that's not the whole person. It's the way they build businesses, unfortunately, though. People 
who are strong on sales, build a great big sales floor, and then they skimp on the storage and on the office, and they have no repair department. Well, you don't need a big repair department to sell new merchandise, but you darn well do to sell used and vintage. And probably need more than they have for selling new to do it well. You at least need to be able to do setup work, handle customers so that they have service. But you don't need as big as we do to handle customer service on new product. But my point is that most businesses, especially in music, most music businesses are set up for the wrong reasons. Uh, somebody wouldn't open up a liquor store because they're alcoholic and want to get it at wholesale. They don't open up a grocery store because they weigh 800 pounds and they want to buy wholesale groceries. But the average music store is set up and run about the way a foot fetishist would run a shoe store. It's wrong. They think that they're going to sit around and party. They're going to have a great time. They're going to get together with all their friends. It's frustrated musicians who are setting up music stores. And it's no wonder that they don't do well at it. They build a big showroom, or if it's a repairman, they set up a big repair area and then have a skimpy little showroom. It takes, even in this building, at least two and a half floors to service the downstairs showroom and this little showroom that we're sitting in. But even most of the floor space on the second floor is not showroom. The first floor is all showroom. The second floor is small showroom and office area. Third floor, as I said, is packing, shipping, and storage. And you figure there's a lot of storage because every time you hang a guitar on the wall, where's the case? Now, if you're selling cars or a lot of other products, you don't have cases that go with each and every one, and we don't display all the cases. We've got a lot of space just devoted to guitar cases, but that's something that sort of goes with the territory in the music business. If you're selling pianos, you don't have a floor of piano cases that you have to store somewhere. But guitars got cases. And then the repair area, you know, we've just gone whole hog on that. And our problem is not that we have too much space in repair or too many repairmen. It's that six can't keep up with it. I've got about 600 instruments in repair that need work before I can sell them. I've got only six guys to do it. So it's a problem. Okay, so that was an interesting segment, talking a little bit about the uh, the status of his shop. Interestingly enough, of course, as we mentioned earlier in the uh, podcast, this was uh, recorded in July of 2000, and uh, George has since moved about 10 minutes south uh, of that shop on Broadway. We interviewed George two other times, one in 2007 and one in 2008, speaking specifically about some of the knowledge that he has about Martin and Gretsch guitars. But I also wanted to mention that uh, George was really very helpful uh, to the oral history program in the very beginning, continues to be a great supporter. Um, and he calls up his friends and, and tells them about this program and how they should be included. And I'm talking about people like Bill Collings, uh, the great luthier, who we unfortunately lost earlier this year, uh, Jean Larivee, Les Paul, he had a hand in getting that interview. Ken Parker, um, Ricky Skaggs, 
Billy Gramer, who I just thought was an absolutely amazing interview, uh, wonderful guy. He played and sang for us as well. Uh, he passed in 2011, and many of you may know the the Gramer uh, headstock. He had his own guitar line for a while, as well as Tut Taylor, uh, the the Dobro player who uh, actually was a partner of George in the very first shop that George started in the early 1970s. So in 2011, um, NAM CEO Joe Lamond presented George with the very first Oral History Service Award in recognition for his help in aligning up some of these interviews. So we're very grateful for that support. And as Dan mentioned earlier in this podcast, uh, George has written a couple books, and we have three of them here. Um, the first being uh, Groon's Guide to Vintage Guitars, which Dan mentioned. Um, just an awesome uh, little pocket handbook to uh, learn about um, collectible instruments and guitars. Um, we also have Acoustic Guitars and Other Fretted Instruments, a photographic history, which is kind of like a collector's book mixed with like a picture book of all these vintage guitar acoustic guitars and uh, other acoustic instruments like banjos mandolins and then the other book that we have is electric guitars and basses a photographic history which is along the same lines um, as the acoustic one so just great resources for anybody out there looking to get into vintage guitars or um, they, if anyone just wants to learn more about um the vintage market. Great, and we're going to finish up today's interview with George, uh, hearing his thoughts on one of our former presidents and CEOs, Larry Lincoln, uh, or affectionately known as Link, and Nam, which is kind of a cool perspective. We don't often hear a lot of Dan's interviewees uh, comment on Nam as an organization, so this is going to be great for us, and we just want to say thank you for joining us, and we'll see you in two weeks. As you know, Link is retiring in the year's time. Just to finish up this tape, I'm wondering if you could give us uh, your thoughts on Link and maybe his role at NAM, so that we can play that for him at a later date. I think Link has been so linked to NAM that somehow it's almost hard to imagine what it's going to be like later. It's going to be quite a transition to fill his shoes. But NAM has done a lot of good for the industry and has grown a lot. Um, it used to be strictly a dealer organization and almost seemed to pit dealers against manufacturers in a way, but now they brought the manufacturers more into real membership. Uh, it was sort of strange because it was a dealer organization except that dealers didn't exhibit, it was manufacturers exhibiting, but they had to join NAM, but they, could, they weren't real true voting members. And I think that was not reasonable, and that's been corrected. Um, NAM offers a lot of services, of course the educational seminars, the health insurance and shipping and other things. I can't claim that I've made full use of all of those, but I'm at least aware of it. And I think a lot of those services are particularly good for people getting started or for the smaller independent stores. The bigger stores don't need help to get a decent rate from MasterCard and Visa. The smaller stores do. The bigger stores may not need as much help getting good insurance rates, but 
NAM offers a lot of services that for the small independent store are extremely helpful. And I think that Link has had a really important role in that. I'm confident NAM will go on, but I also think it's going to be very difficult to find one person with the energy and the scope, pretty broad-ranging vision that he has had. It remains to be seen. Hopefully it will work well, and I fully expect that he'll help in the transition, so it probably will go well. I want to thank you very much for your time. I know this is at the end of your long work day, and I just greatly appreciate your insight, and uh, again, thank you.